Well, you're in for a treat today. Bob Russell is going to be speaking in this service. And yeah, give him a welcome. There you go. I can't tell you how much he means to me and, and my family. We have sat under his preaching remotely for a long time. And I've learned a lot from his ministry, his teaching, his faithfulness to the Word of God. And his faithfulness to the Word of God is what used God, uh, Bob in Southeast Christian Church to grow that from a small church to one of the largest churches in America for his faithfulness to preaching the Word of God. And Bob comes today uh, to share a word. I had an opportunity to sit through the first service, so I know what you're going to get. And I would like for you to welcome our brother, Bob Russell. Well, good morning. Thank you. Now, I know what you're thinking. How old is this guy? <laughs> I'm going to be 79 next month. Somebody, somebody asked me several weeks ago, said, Bob, would you do my funeral? I said, I, I will, but you better hurry up. You know, <laughs> I really appreciate and admire this church for your growth. And, but I walk through the hallways. There's just a spirit of joy and happiness and unity here that is really healthy. And just keep up the great work. God is really, really using you. And thank you for inviting me today, Terry. Uh, two weeks ago... Uh, probably three weeks ago now, I visited with Bill McKinley just before he died. Bill McKinley had been the superintendent of the Christian Academy of Louisville. He came here from California and stayed as the superintendent for about two decades. He had a real passion for kids, wanting them to have a Christian worldview in these perilous times. He took 20 trips to Russia with senior classes. And he led the Christian Academy of Louisville in growth from 481 students to over 3,000 students. It became the largest Christian school in America. And Bill was loved by faculty, students, board members, and parents alike. But several months ago, after he'd been retired for about a decade, Bill was diagnosed with a form of leukemia, and his body began to waste away. He was 84 years old and knew that his time had come. So three weeks ago, I went to his home to visit with him. His wife met me at the door, and she said, Bill is so eager to go to heaven, I just don't think he's going to stay around much longer. Now that's a phrase you don't hear very often. Bill is eager to go to heaven. The COVID pandemic revealed to me that there are a number of churchgoers who are terrified of dying. I can point to you some couples who still two and a half years later are quarantined for the most part. They don't come to church. They seldom go out of the house. They don't go visit their, even their grandchildren on holidays or birthdays. And when they do go out, they're always masked. They won't go inside at a restaurant. Now, I, I understand they're in their 70s and more vulnerable, but that degree of fear of death should not be. Christians should not be terrified of dying. I know the will to live is strong as an instinct, and we need to 
be guard our health and not be foolish, but neither should we be terrified of death. In Hebrews, the second chapter, the Bible says that Christ came, died for our sins to free those who all their lives are held in bondage by the fear of death. Like Bill McKinley, we ought to reach the point in our Christian growth where we're eager to meet Jesus, eager to go to heaven, and death no longer holds us in its grip. The Apostle Paul is the best example of that. Listen to what he had to say as he was nearing death. It's in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 6 through 8. J. Vernon McGee says that Paul was writing his own epitaph here. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have longed for his appearing. Now, 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter. And you can get the feeling here that Paul was suspicious that he was about to be executed. And he said, I'm ready to go. I'm eager to die. Why did Paul have that kind of confidence? And what can we do to duplicate that kind of assurance in our own lives? Well, one reason he was confident, he had poured out his life in service. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, there were a variety of offerings that were presented at the Jewish temple. The most familiar was the meat offering. A family would bring maybe a year old lamb without defect, present it to the priest, and the priest would kill the lamb and then burn the animal on the altar. And after the animal was sacrificed, there was meat left over for the priest and his household and some meat left over maybe for the family that had brought the offering. But the drink offering was different. There was nothing left over in the drink offering. The priest would take a flask of wine, and when the altar was sizzling hot, he would pour the wine over the altar, and it would just evaporate. It turned into steam, and there's nothing left over. Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He's emptied. There's nothing left. We say of an athlete, he left it all on the field. Paul said, I've left my all on the altar in service to Jesus Christ. He had poured out his personal ambitions. As a young man, Saul of Tarsus may have had aspirations to become a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. He had the Hebrew pedigree. He had the academic credentials. He had the innate intelligence to get there. But when he met Jesus, he emptied his ambitions on the altar to become a traveling evangelist. He gave up uh, probable wealth. He grew up in a fairly affluent family. They could afford the best of education. They sent him to be trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the best of teachers. But now he became a preacher. He sometimes went hungry and sometimes he had to scrape to get by, work on the side as a tent maker, as a bivocational preacher. He gave up his freedom. He was frequently incarcerated, sometimes in a dungeon, sometimes home incarceration. He gave up his comforts and security. He risked his life on dangerous roads and rickety ships, and he gave up fame. He became a nobody to the world and to the point where his former friends probably felt sorry for Saul of Tarsus. Can't you imagine a 20th year reunion 
of the students of Gamaliel, and the guy is saying, whatever happened to Saul of Tarsus? I voted for him for most likely to succeed. He never amounted to anything, did he? And even the people in the church said they weren't all that impressed with Paul. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 23, he lists the sacrifices that he had made, how he had poured out his life. He said, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. So that makes a total of eight times that Paul was whipped. His back must have looked like a tennis racket of scars. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. We read about one in Acts 27. Nothing is said of the other two. But he said, I spent a night and day in the open sea. I was out there just treading water, hoping somebody would rescue me. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? You talk about burnout. Paul was poured out for the sake of Christ. Nothing left to give, like a drink offering. And of course, the reason he had done that was because he realized that that's what Jesus had done for him. Before Jesus died, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus left it all on the altar of the cross. Now we are called as followers of Christ to pour out our lives in service to him. When we first become a Christian, we don't really pour out our lives. We kind of parcel it out and give of ourselves. We used to tell new members in our church, okay, we're going to ask three hours of you every week, an hour of worship, an hour of Bible study, and an hour of service. So when we talk about serving, pouring out our life, we usually connect it to the church. Serve in the nursery, serve on the worship team, serve cleaning up the building, vacation Bible school, medical clinic, greeter, prayer team. All that's good. This church couldn't function as large as this church has become. You can't function without a lot of people serving. You see these orange shirts, those people are serving. But a lot of you serve in a variety of ways in this church to make it function. But our service isn't limited to church. If we pour out our life in service, it ought to be a part of every day in our home and our community. I have a friend who is probably 10 years younger than I am. He has two grandsons who have no father, and his daughter, the mother of the boys, has had some issues and cannot take care of them. So my friend, the grandfather, and his wife have for the last 15 years made a home for these boys, adopted these boys. And every day they're taking them to school, helping them with their homework, taking them to their ball practice, going to their games, and pouring out their lives for these two boys in a period where they ought to be retired and free. And my friend likes to play golf, and often when he's asked to play golf or go on a trip, he'll say, well, I can't. And we all know why. He's pouring out his life as a second father to these boys. Now those boys, it may be two decades before they appreciate what has been done for them, or maybe never. But he's 
pouring it all on the altar to give them an opportunity. Bill Wilson once defined sacrifice as giving up something you love for something you love more. So service for you may mean ministering in a prison, coaching a t-ball team, uh, taking needed supplies to people in the flood-ravaged area of eastern Kentucky, providing free tutoring for a disadvantaged child, driving an elderly neighbor to the doctor frequently, offering to babysit for a hassled mother who has a special needs child, helping distribute food at the local food bank, doing handiwork for a young couple who don't have much money, slipping a $100 bill into the hand of a single woman at church who's really struggling. There are ways that you pour out your life in service. Now, when you do that, there are two primary benefits. First, it creates a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Uh, so many times people are hesitant to really serve because they think that they'll be deprived. They think the way to really be satisfied and happy is self-indulgence. But just the opposite is true. The more you serve, the better you feel about yourself. You just had a group come back from eastern Kentucky serving for four or five days, and they feel really good about what they, they have done. Jesus said, you seek to save your life, you lose it. You lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll find it. Let me tell you about a week that I had about two weeks ago, a busy week. I had agreed to preach a revival in a place called Peaks Mill, Kentucky. Anybody know where Peaks Mill, Kentucky is? Okay, it's about as far north from Frankfurt as you are south, but it's way down in the valley. It is not a metropolis, but in Peaks Mill, there's this wonderful little Christian church. It seats about 100 people. They have about 100 people at a revival. And I had agreed several years ago to preach a revival at this church. So I drove down on Sunday morning and then drove back to Louisville Sunday afternoon, went to the nursing home, then drove back on Sunday night. I drove back on Monday night, preached the revival, back on Tuesday night. And Wednesday, I stopped in Frankfurt for an hour podcast that I was to do. Then I went to Peaks Mill and preached the revival. On Thursday at the last minute, uh, just a couple of weeks before, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville needed somebody to fill the pulpit, and they have a Thursday night service, so I preached in Louisville at Southeast on Thursday night. On Saturday, I had a funeral. On Sunday, I came back to Southeast and preached Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I'm retired. <laughs> but I figured, I had preached 10 times in eight days. I was so sick of me, I didn't want to hear me again. <laughs> And so when I came home on Sunday afternoon, I was so tired I could barely eat. I took a nap, but when I woke up from the nap, I felt really good about myself. I just felt satisfied that I had served. And I felt a lot better about myself than if I had spent the week lounging around the house watching Andy Griffith on TV all day long. Legendary football coach Vince Lombardi once said, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear, is that moment when he's worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle victorious. That doesn't just apply to sports or to work. It applies doubly to the Christian life. When you pour out your life like a drink offering, you have this inner satisfaction of having served. But also, this, another benefit is, when you serve, it creates a sense of confidence in death. Raise your hand if you're a teenager. Okay, okay got a teenager right here, right? How old are you? 17? 15. What's your name? 
Brianna, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's, let's pretend together, okay? Let's imagine your mother comes in on uh, Saturday morning. You're counting on sleeping in. Your mother comes in at 8 o'clock. And she said, I want you out of that bed. I want you today to clean up this room. It is a pigsty. I want you. I'm going to be gone until noon. When I get back at noon, I want this room to be cleaned up. You understand. You understand. But let's say she leaves and you just lounge in bed to about 11 o'clock. And then you hop out of bed and uh, throw the covers over the pillow and put a few shoes in the closet and, and pick up a few dirty clothes. And your room still looks nasty. Let me ask you a question. Are you eager for your mother to come home or not? No, not at all. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's imagine, let's say the Holy Spirit comes on you at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you bound out of bed, and you make that bed like you've never made it before. I mean, it is perfect. You can bounce a quarter off the blanket. It is so tight. And then you put all the dirty clothes in the hamper, and you hang up all the clothes that are lying around, and you pick up all the shoes, and you put them in the, in the closet, and then you, you even straighten up some of the clutter on the desk, and then you take down some of the posters on the wall that your mother doesn't like, and it's 11 o'clock, and she's still not home, but you're so fired up, you go out in the garage, and you start sweeping out the garage, and you sweep out the garage, and it's 11.45, and she's still not home, so you go out, and you start weeding in the flower garden. Are you eager for her to come home? Yeah, right answer. Very good. Why? Because you served. And, and you know she's going to be pleased with you. And what's she going to do when she gets home? She's going to say, you're the best child I could have ever had. Here's $100. No more curfew. You just live your life. Yeah? Now, when you serve in Jesus Christ, it is not to earn salvation. But it is a, a rewarding to know that you're eager for the Lord to return for you to be commended. And that was the Apostle Paul. He had poured out his life in service, and he's ready to face judgment. Here's another reason Paul was confident in death. He viewed death as a departure. He says, the time for my departure has come. Now, writers of modern literature speak of death in foreboding terms. It is the grim reaper. It is the long black train that is to be avoided. It's the cold, dark river. But Paul said, when I die, it is a departure. And he pictures a ship hoisting its anchor, sailing out to sea. And uh, you picture the people on board uh, the ship waving goodbye to the people on shore. But you expect the ship to anchor in another harbor where there are going to be new relationships and new joys. Paul calls his death a departure. About a month ago, I took a golf trip to northern Minnesota. Do we have any golfers in here? I'm not going to ask you a question. Just raise your hand. Okay, okay we've got a few. This trip to northern Minnesota, here's a picture of the golf course we go to. It's a place called Giants Ridge. It's near the Canadian line. It might be 95 degrees in Louisville, but in northern Minnesota, it, never, it doesn't get more than 75 degrees, and the humidity is down. It just is invigorating, lifts your spirits. And we get so excited about going there. We play golf, 16 of us, and then we have a fellowship and eat, and we have a devotional night. We so look forward to this trip. But if you were to see these guys at the airport getting ready to depart 7 o'clock in the morning. They're all giddy. 60, 70-year-old guys, they're like teenagers. And if you ask us, why are you so excited? You think we would say, 
well, in just a few minutes, we get to get into this tiny plane and sit cramped in the middle of this seat, put a seat belt on. We can't move for two hours. And if we're really lucky, we'll have somebody beside us that wants to talk the whole time. And maybe the flight attendant will come down the aisle and give us some free water and some wafers. And if we're really, really lucky, the plane might hit some turbulence. We get to bounce around for a little bit. And then we slam down. Is that what we're going to talk about? No. What are we going to talk about? We're not going to talk about the... The we're going to talk about the destination, the golf courses, and what we're going to experience. Now, I don't know anybody who looks forward to dying. Because there's usually confinement, discomfort, pain, maybe humiliation. But as Christians, we look forward to the destination. We don't have a death wish, but we do have a death strategy. The Bible says we're going to a place where there's no pain, no tears, no sorrow, no death. The former things have passed away. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And when you view death as a departure to that eternal destination in heaven, it eliminates a lot of anxiety. Jesus told the thief on the cross who's going through the pain of death, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Short trip. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It happens immediately. That's your destination. Billy Graham told about the death. I'm pretty certain it was his grandmother. He said she was old, very old, and in a coma. But at the last minute she rallied and she opened up her eyes and said, I see Jesus. And there's Ben. And he has two arms and two legs. And she died. And Billy Graham went on to explain that his Great Uncle Ben had been injured in the Civil War and had lost part of his arm and a leg, and he spent his life as an amputee. And his grandmother said, I see Jesus, and there's Ben, and he's got two arms and two legs. And when you view heaven, your destination as a place of perfection, it makes you eager to depart. Paul was also ready to die because he anticipated receiving a reward. He said, there is laid up for me a crown of life. Uh, on our golf trip in the evening, we have an award ceremony. And if you were closest to the pin or your team won, there is a cash reward. And so if you played well during the day, you look forward to the award ceremony. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by God's grace, not by works. Ephesians 2 says it is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. So we're not saved because we earn it. We're saved by grace. But the Bible also teaches that there are going to be degrees of reward once we get to heaven. In Luke, the 19th chapter, Jesus told a parable about the minas. Uh, unit of money. And everybody was given 10 minas, which is about $5,000. And the owner went on a long journey and came back sometime later. And the first man said, your 10 minas have been invested and I've earned 10 more. Now you've got 20. And the owner said, that's very good. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. The second guy said, I've earned five minas more. He said, that's very good. I'm going to make you mayor of five cities. The third guy said, well, I didn't invest your money. I just kept it here in a cloth. And the owner said, well, you take it from him and give the one who has 10. Obviously, we're going to be rewarded according to our service. Jesus talked about great will be your reward in heaven or 
Nobody gives a cup of cold water in my name without receiving a reward. Or listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, Jesus Christ, using gold, silver, or costly stones. Now, these are imperishable metals. Wood, hay, or straw, those are combustible materials. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. Now, this is not the fire of hell. This is a purifying fire, a testing fire. The fire will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, there are going to be some people who just escape hell. There are others who are going to be significantly rewarded in heaven. Now, the word for, Paul says, I've got a crown waiting me. The word for crown is in the Greek, stephanos, from which we get the word Stephen. If your name is Stephen, that means a victorious crown. In Paul's day, if a runner in competition won the race, he would get a a crown of greenery, a wreath he could wear around instead of a gold medal. Paul said, I'm going to receive not a fading green crown of of leaves, but I'm going to get a crown of righteousness that will never fade. But I think this clearly teaches there will be degrees of merit in heaven. I think there will be a reward for a voluntary sacrifice. My friend and his wife who have sacrificed to raise those two boys who are their grandchildren will receive special acclaim in heaven. There will be rewards for martyrdom. Revelation 6, 9 says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. People like Stephen, who was stoned to death, and Jim Elliot, who was killed by natives in Ecuador, they're they're going to be honored in heaven. There will be rewards for faithfulness. I think the Lord is going to say to my wife, Judy, you stayed with him for 57 years. You're not going to have to listen to him preach for another thousand years in heaven. And you're not going to have to sit on another hard bleacher and watch him play softball and your grandchildren play football and your children play baseball. You had enough of that and you didn't like sports. You got a special easy chair in heaven. There's going to be a reward for faithfulness in heaven. I think there'll be a reward for suffering. Some people go through almost their entire life and hardly ever suffer. And other people have one bad thing after another. And when the day of judgment comes, those who have had extreme suffering are going to be honored. There will be rewards for generosity, financial sacrifice. Jesus made that clear. Matthew 19, he said, everyone who has left houses or family or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's this long-term compensation plan in heaven. That's why Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth. It's going to fade. Lay up treasure in heaven. He says here, a hundred times as much. That's about 10,000% if you invest. When we get to heaven, Terry Cooper, he's going to be driving around a Mercedes. (laughs) I'll be tooling around in a Prius. Chad, he'll be on roller skates. There'll be different (laughs) degrees of reward in heaven. Now, Paul had sacrificed. He had suffered. He had served faithfully. He said, I've been a courageous soldier. I've fought a good fight. 
I'm a determined runner. I finished the race according to the rules. Like a good steward, I faithfully served and guarded the boss's funds. Now, Paul had not always been popular. He hadn't always been comfortable, but he'd been faithful, and that was going to count. He knew the Lord had laid up a crown of righteousness for him in heaven. One other reason he didn't fear death. He eagerly longed to see Jesus. He said, the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to give me at that day. I'm going to meet the Lord. And he's eager to see Jesus. I think Paul had met Jesus personally twice. He certainly had met Jesus on the Damascus Road when he didn't believe in him. He's going to Damascus to persecute the Christians. But outside the city gate, a bright light struck him to the ground. And a voice called out from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He called out, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Paul couldn't see him because he struck blind, but he had met Jesus. And he appreciated his grace. But I think he met him a second time when he was caught up into heaven and he saw a vision of what eternal life was going to be like. Here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now he's obviously talking about himself. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether apart in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, I think this happened uh, as recorded in Acts 14 when Paul was stoned outside of Lystra. The enemies thought he was dead. Now, God raised him up and he went back in the city. But I think that was a miraculous resurrection. And when he was stoned outside of Lystra, I think he had this out-of-the-body experience. And he was taken up and given a, a view of what heaven was like. And I think Jesus led him on that tour. And he met Jesus. He knew Jesus. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'm not permitted to tell you how great it is. And it's really indescribable. But I'll tell you this, to die is gain. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And the present sufferings that we're going through are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. Paul was familiar with Jesus and eager to meet him. Okay, you answered the first question right. I'm going to give you another question. You ready for it? In the Gospel of John, there is, it's not an open books test. Now, don't, don't, don't get the Bible. In the Gospel of John, it says that the disciples, after Jesus had raised from the dead, were waiting in Galilee to see him. And they went out and fished all night long. And did they catch any fish? Right, no. Uh, but at dawn, there was a lone figure on the shore and a stranger to them. And the stranger called out, because they were just 100 yards from shore, and said, have you caught any fish? And the disciples, exasperated, said, no, haven't caught anything. And then the stranger said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And what happened when they threw the net on the other side of the boat? They caught a whole bunch of fish. So many fish that the net nearly broke. Okay. Now here's the big question. John, the apostle, said to Simon Peter, I guarantee you that's Jesus. That's the Lord. Do you know, and most people in here don't know, do you know what Peter did? 
I'm asking you, don't say what. <laughs> what did Peter do? That's cheating. <laughs> Your Mercedes has just gone down to another Prius. What did, what did Peter do? He jumped out of the boat and he swam ashore because he, he didn't want to wait for the boat. He was so eager to see Jesus. He didn't care about the fish. He was eager to see Jesus. Now, he'd been with Jesus for three years. Now, when you first become a Christian and you're introduced to Jesus, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You may fear standing before Jesus, but the more you come to know Jesus, the more you're eager to be with him and to see him and to join him. Eagerness to go because he was eager to be with Jesus. He's caught up in the third heaven. He had seen him. Now, I want to show you a picture that is a Pulitzer Prize photo entitled Burst of Joy. It's always been one of my favorites until recently. But what is shown here is United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sturm being reunited with his family after spending more than five years in captivity as a POW in North Vietnam. Now the centerpiece of this photograph is Sturm's 15-year-old daughter racing across the tarmac to see her daddy, whom she hadn't seen for five years. But she remembered him because she's 10 years old when he departed. And she really, and you can't help but see the joy, the excitement of this moment with uh, this girl. And when I see this picture, I almost always think of heaven. Can you imagine what that's going to be like when we are welcomed into the arms of our heavenly father? And then I think Jesus is going to say, now behind that door there, there's some people who want to see you. And the gates of heaven swing open. And there come your family members and loved ones and people you've known. And the reunion is going to be unbelievable. Don't you think? We used to sing, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day that will be. We're eager to see Jesus. You know, there's a survey taken recently of the phrases that people most like to hear if spoken sincerely. And the number one phrase that people like to hear is, I love you. Number two is, you're forgiven. Would anybody like to hear the guess about the third phrase people like most to hear? It's supper time. <laughs> and I got to thinking, isn't that what the Lord does for us? He comes to us and says, I love you. As my Father has loved me, so I love you. And you're forgiven. Though your sins are scarlet, they're white as snow. And then he says, it's supper time. Come on in, I'm the bread of life. And let's enjoy the feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what a day that's going to be. Now I told you this had been my favorite picture. But recently I changed my mind a little bit. Because despite outward appearances, this reunion was not totally happy for Lieutenant Sturm. Because when he arrived in the United States, he, he received a Dear John letter from his wife, Loretta, informing him that their marriage was over. 
He learned that Loretta had been with other men through his captivity, and she had agreed to marry one of them. And so shortly they were divorced, and she remarried. But Lieutenant Colonel Sturm was still ordered by the courts to provide his wife with 43% of his military retirement pay once he retired from the Air Force. Our court system is so messed up. There's so much inequity. There are people being punished that shouldn't be punished and people not being punished that should be punished. But one day, there's a righteous judge who's going to make all things fair and right. And Paul was eager to meet him for he knew that he would be rewarded for his service and all things would be fair. He's going to face a judge that wasn't fair and be executed, but he's going to face the righteous judge on that day. Bill McKinley died. His funeral was two weeks ago. A lot of people came, had wonderful things to say about him. But I want to close by reading what Matt Shelfont, chairman of the Christian Academy Board, said about Bill McKinley. He said, what impressed me most about Bill McKinley was he wasn't impressed with Bill McKinley. He was a humble servant leader. And after he retired, he believed in Christian education so much that for 10 years, he came back regularly as a substitute teacher. Here's a superintendent, came back two or three times a week, substituting in any class. He was a kid's favorite substitute teacher. And he said he would come back to sporting events, graduations, band concerts, and you'd see students greeting him. Hi, Mr. McKinley. They're 18. He's 80, but he's connecting with them. Why? Because he poured himself into them, and they sensed that he cared. Bill McKinley could say like the Apostle Paul, I've been poured out like a drink offering. Therefore, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all those also who long for his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every day becomes more meaningful because there is an end in view. Uh, how hopeless it would be if we were to board a ship and then just disappear. But we know the ship of life anchors in another harbor where there are new relationships. So help us not to fear our departure. Help us to be eager to see Jesus eager to receive the crown of life which you have in store. Help us in the meantime to be like Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. We pray in his loving and strong name. Amen.